It was 9 a.m. March 11, 2005. Ashley Smith's life was getting ready to change forever. Of course, she wouldn't discover that for another 10 hours. So I'm not sure if you'll remember this incident, uh, but it's been a few years. And I think as our culture has devolved, incidents like this have unfortunately become more commonplace. But in 2005, this scene grabbed the attention of every news reporter in our nation, and rightfully so. If you remember it, the incident involved the trial of an accused rapist named Brian Nichols. By all accounts, his trial should have taken place without the notice of anyone at all. But that changed the moment Nichols, en route to the courtroom, overpowered Sheriff Deputy Cynthia Hall, grabbing her pistol and heading for the courtroom, not for trial but to shoot the judge. By the time all was said and done, a total of four were dead, and Nichols, who had now stolen a getaway car, was on the move. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. Every television in Atlanta blared. A heavily armed individual believed to be capable of killing has escaped the courtroom this afternoon. His picture appeared. Should you see this individual, take immediate precautions. Do not approach. Call 911. I don't have to tell you, Atlanta was terrified, except for her. So on the evening of March 11th, a single mom by the name of Ashley Smith convinced herself that she would be safe. She's just running to the corner store. She needed cigarettes. I mean, surely Atlanta was big enough. She wasn't going to run into this suspect, whoever he was. How wrong she was. With clarity, Ashley will tell you today she can still feel the cold barrel of a Glock pistol pressed against her skull. As Nichols half-pushed, half-dragged her back into his apartment where she would remain his hostage over the next 16 harrowing hours. Initially, she reports, I, I couldn't help but see my life coming to an end. But then God had other things in mind. In a remarkable way, as Ashley tells her story today, God chose to use this woman to change the narrative of what could have been a tale of death and shattered lives. Sitting in my apartment with a killer, she recounts, I begin to pray, Lord, if there's any way that you can use the last minutes or hours of my life for some kingdom good, would you do it? Just think about that. Here's a person that could be living the last minutes of her life and she's, she's praying to be used, not, not, hey, save me, Lord, but God, use me. I don't know about you, but for me. That is one God-sized prayer. And you know what? The Lord heard that prayer. I'm just going to put this in summary form, but listen to this. This is what happened. During those 16 hours, as Ashley was held hostage, she asked her assailant for permission to share with him a book. The book, popular at the time, was written by Christian pastor and author Rick Warren. It's titled The Purpose Driven Life. So Ashley says that as she shared this book with Nichols, his demeanor actually changed. He went from anger, hatred, uh, a mix of paranoia to what she calls actually calm. In fact, she uses the word peaceful. Something was happening inside of him. As she shared the book with this man who, who really at any moment could snap, she dared raise a question for him. Looking Nichols in the eye, she asked, what if all of this has happened? Because God has a purpose for you. What if your purpose in life is actually to give yourself up and to actually go to prison? 
and to spend your days giving witness to Jesus to prisoners who don't know the Lord. What if that's your purpose? What if it's your calling? Here's, here's what I want you to hear. He listened. God was in Ashley's witness to this man. So, so much so that 26 hours after killing four people, Nichols turned himself into the police, convicted of two things. Number one, that what he had done was evil. He, he would pay for it but also convicted that God did have a purpose for his life, even if that meant living out that purpose behind bars. And Ashley Smith, if you want to read more of her story, you can. Um, Sometime after this event, she turned her story into a book titled Unlikely Angel. And and in it, she says something I I want to just raise up for us today. She says, you know what? If God can use someone like me to do his kingdom work, he could use anybody. In this episode of God Says Living, I want, I want to talk today about the way in which God seems to just put the right person at the right time in the right place for his kingdom purposes. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, uh, whether it's a terrible tragedy, as in the case of, of Ashley Smith, or, or a need in the life of the church or another individual, Seems like God's always subtly at work behind the scenes, raising up the person he knows will be the right person to work through and address a need. As we re-enter chapter 8 of our journey through Daniel, I think this is what we see through this character, the character of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Uh, In this part of Daniel's story, I see a question, and I want to just put it in front of you as we as we dig in. The question is, how might God be placing you right now as the right person for a kingdom need that he has seen long before you will ever even recognize its existence? So as we begin, I'm going to share with you the title to an interesting book. Some of you know I love reading good leadership books, and I'm thankful for someone handing me this one. It's titled, Uh, How to Choose the Right Person for the Right Job Every Time. It's written by Lori Davila in 2004, right on the hills of Jim Collins' breakthrough book, uh, From Good to Great. If you've read Collins, you know that uh, one of the leadership principles that he lifts up is that not not only of getting the right person on the bus, i.e. your business or entity, but also getting the right persons in the right seats. Uh, I think most leaders will tell you that if there's one thing they're constantly having to deal with and process, it's the question of how do I make sure I get the right people in the right places within their organization? So how do you do it? It's kind of where Davila steps in. It's her contention that one of the reasons corporations fail to remain competitive actually has to do with hiring practices and specifically interviewing techniques. Uh, she draws on experience from companies like Coca-Cola, Nortel, and Siemens, and, and begins to present a picture of what it means to move from a more traditional interview process, which she critiques, toward more of a behavioral interview process, one in which she suggests uh, you will increase the probability of getting the right person into the right place at the right time. So I'm just going to share this with you. As I read her book, I, I did learn some things. The book's helpful. I don't, I don't want you to get the impression that I would in any way suggest otherwise. But, but as I read it, there was this nagging voice inside of me that kept asking a question. 
I kept hearing this question. How, how does the thinking of the corporate world within our capitalistic culture fit into what it means for God to place right people into right places at just the right time? I, I'm telling you, I could not get away from that question. And, and honestly, Daniel is, is part of the why behind my inability to get past that question. Listen, when you, when you read the book of Daniel, most of the characters that God chooses and uses in his kingdom efforts are not ones that would fare well in any interview process, traditional or behaviorally based. The truth is many of the characters in the book are inexperienced. They're ordinary. Sometimes they're actually antithetical to the kingdom of God. And, and I believe that this is absolutely the case with regard to the central character we meet as we re-enter chapter eight today, the character of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king. I'm just going to read verses one to three of chapter eight. Notice as I read uh, where these verses take us. And I'm just going to pray, Lord, that you would give us some insight today through these, these words. All right. Daniel uh, chap, chapter eight, verses one to three. It reads as follows. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. Let, let me st stop there. What are these verses describing? Let's break this down just a little bit. First of all, I want you to notice that what Daniel is describing here is a dream or uh, I like the, the, the word ecstasy. Uh, and I like it because it's descriptive. Uh, ecstasy is a word made up of two different Greek words, ek and stasis. Ek means out of, stasis means standing. And so, so what happens uh, when you have an ecstasy is a little bit different than when you just have a, a dream. When you have an ecstasy, uh, it's the kind of dream where you feel as though you've left your body and are truly experiencing everything that you are seeing. That's what Daniel's describing here. So where, where is he? So Daniel tells us that in this ecstasy, he finds himself in the fortress city of Susa. Today, today of course, Susa would be uh, located in Iran. Uh, the Susa of, of the Bible is modern-day town Shish. You'll find it in the lower part of the Zagros mountain range. And, and let me say this, if you do find it, it doesn't look like much. But in the time of Daniel, Susa was a significant city. It served, in fact, as the winter palace to Persia's kings. Now, in the dream, Daniel in Susa sees a ram. This, of course, is a symbol. The, the ram symbolizes someone, but who? So what, what I tell people is when you read this section of Daniel, pay attention to the details because the details will give you a clue. So notice this. The ram has two horns, but the horns are not equally aligned. One horn is raised up higher than the other horn. Hmm. So what this symbolizes will become more clear as we move deeper into Daniel, but I want you to see this. The ram in this vision is 
none other than Cyrus the Great. He's the founder of what is known as the Achaemenid Empire, stretched from ancient Near East through both Western and Central Asia to the Indus Valley. And this was by far the largest empire of its time. Remember, we're about 539 BC. Now the horns. Why, why is one horn aligned higher than the other? So remember with me that Cyrus was born about 600 BC. The parents whose ethnicities represented the two great empires of their time. Cyrus's father, Cambyses, was Persian and his mother, Mandane, was a Mede. At the time of his birth, it was the Medes who were overlords of the Persians, creating what is typically called the Medo-Persian Empire. But Cyrus, the, the son, would change that. When Cyrus succeeded his father to the throne of Persia, one of the first things he did was to actually overcome the Median Empire, ruled at that time by his grandfather, Astyages. The year was 548 BC. This, of course, allowed Cyrus to unite the two empires into the one single Persian Empire, more familiar to most of us. So let's go back to the ram. It has two horns. Why? Because in Cyrus, we have two empires, the Median Empire, the Persian Empire. They become united. One horn is elevated over the other to symbolize Cyrus's successful overthrow of the Medes to form that united Persia. Now, here, here's what makes all this interesting. The imagery in Daniel's dream, from a historical perspective, is absolutely accurate. In fact, it's astounding, given the fact that he actually dreamed this dream or this ecstasy three years prior to its fulfillment. So you, you ask the question, what? Where is God going with all this? Why, why is he giving Daniel this ecstasy? Why is he pointing him towards this pagan ruler named Cyrus? So we're gonna, again, we're going to get into this much deeper in our journey, but here, here's what I hope you see at this juncture. God is pointing Daniel to a pagan ruler, Cyrus, for a reason. Because he, God, is getting ready to use this pagan ruler in a significant kingdom way. He will use Cyrus to pave the way for Israel, who's been in exile now for 70 years, to actually go back home to Jerusalem to be released from slavery. So let me say it a little bit differently. For God, Cyrus is the right man in the right place at the right time. Now, back to DeVille's book, How to Choose the Right Person for the Right Job Every Time. Let me ask you, this. Is there anything at all about Cyrus the pagan king that would suggest to you that he would or even could become an instrument in God's hands towards the restoration of Israel? There's really not. From the perspective of a Collins or a Davila, Cyrus is a bust. Yet God says no. He's clearly the right man for this job. And in doing so, I think it reminds us of something. That God's kingdom ways are different from the ways of the corporate world. All you have to do is flip through the pages of scripture to see this is true time and time again. So let me ask you this. What does it mean for you? I want to close by asking three questions today. Question number one, are you the right person in the right place at the right time? I'm going to share this verse with you because it's made a tremendous difference in my life. You'll find it in Acts chapter 17. The setting is Athens where the Apostle Paul has been invited to speak to the intelligentsia of that day, the philosophers and the poets of Rome, and specifically the Areopagus, which was a group of thinkers who made judgments on new thinking as it entered Rome. 
I'm going to tell you that this entire chapter, chapter 17 Acts, is captivating. But the words that have captured my life are these. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. I'm just going to read it. It reads as follows. And he, that is God, made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having, listen to these words, having appointed their, mankind's, exact times and places. Catch this. God has determined your exact time and place in this world. Exact. You, you weren't born into the time you're living in out of random chance. No. Listen, before the world was made, God determined that you would live in this time and in this place. Why? Because before you were ever born, God said, I have an exact right person for the exact right time in the exact right place. He puts you here with intentionality. What makes us the right people in the kingdom is distant from the corporate world's ideology. What makes you right is a faith that believes that God has called you to something bigger than yourself. It's a faith that believes that he will provide you what is needed to carry that calling out and that you will never go it alone because he walks with you. If I can say it simply, you are the right person right now in the kingdom, exactly where God has placed you. So let me give you this second question. How aware are you of this? Are you living today with kingdom intentionality? Is there a conviction deep within you that says, I see it. I see it. I, I see the call God's given me. And I desire, desire to give myself to it. I'm going to ask, because even within the church, I, I see too many people that are living what I call jellyfish lives. Jellyfish are funny creatures. They, they don't have much of a steering apparatus, so guess what? They float along wherever waves push them. You know what I see? Too many people living that way. I started God-sized living for this reason. Because my greatest hope for people is that each one of us discover the depth of intentionality with which God has placed us here in this world and that we pursue our calling with everything that we have. I mean all out. Because I'm convinced there is not a greater way to live. But I do know that we have an enemy that desires otherwise. So with the enemy in mind, let me ask one last question. What conversations are taking place inside of your head today that are actually preventing you from seeing who God has made you to be. Here's what I know. I know that while our spiritual enemy, be it Satan or his fallen angels, cannot see inside our head, they can get into our head. So here's what I like to encourage individuals to do. Slow down enough to listen. I mean, really listen to the conversations that you are having with yourself. Sometimes they're made up with words like these. I don't think I'm good enough. Gifts? What gifts? I don't feel like I have much to offer. I have failed God so many times. I'm, I'm not sure that he can even forgive me, much less use me. I, I could go on and on, but I won't. It's time to bring this episode to an end, but I do want you to know something. That if you read the Bible's narratives, here's what you'll see. You'll see that God has consistently throughout history taken people that do not seem like they have any gifts at all. People who have failed him. People who the world would interview and dismiss in a hot second. He's taken them and said exactly what he says to you. You are just the right person at just the right time 
in just the right place. I want to thank you for listening today. I hope you'll join me next week. Uh, I'm going to continue praying for you. And I always ask that. Just pray for me and pray for, for my family. Listen, until next time, have a God-sized week.